Imagine it's the summer of 1974 and you're a 27-year-old director making your first really big movie. A thriller based on a mega-hit novel called Jaws. Your star is a 25-foot-long, 10-ton mechanical shark that's supposed to race through the ocean, flash its fearsome teeth, and scare the wits out of your characters and the audience. On this day, well into production, your shark is making its debut. You take a few deep breaths as they gingerly lower it into the harbor on Martha's Vineyard. You're trying not to show how much you need this to go right, but part of you is terrified because so far your film has been, well, jinxed. The script isn't finished. Your actors are fighting. The weather is terrible, casting doubt on your decision to shoot in the open ocean instead of on a soundstage. You've doubled the budget and tripled the production schedule, and in the eyes of many, you are in way over your head. And as you're standing there, flushed anxious, all you can think about is another shark, 3,000 miles away, in an office tower in Hollywood, about six feet long and 175 pounds in a black suit and oversized eyeglasses, a shark who goes by the name Lou Wasserman. He's the one who approved you for this job. And right now, he's the only person on earth who can save you from being tossed onto the ocean floor. Lou Wasserman is universally acknowledged to be the most powerful man in Hollywood. In his decades at the top, he has learned one thing dead sure. To become king and stay king, you have to fight off everyone else who wants the throne. And if that shark doesn't start doing what it's supposed to, if this highly anticipated film is a bust, he will have to battle to keep his position. All of that is racing through your head as they start to lower your mechanical shark into the water. The tow lines let go of the platform. You don't dare blink. And then it happens. Slowly, inevitably, your precious shark sinks. At that moment, with frogmen diving to fetch the shark and studio underlings running off to phone their bosses, you know for sure that your ass is on the line. But you also know that Lou Wasserman's is as well. And lucky for you, Lou Wasserman never loses. They called him the most powerful man in Hollywood, and he really was, and he really was for decades. He extended his tentacles throughout the entire entertainment industry, from Broadway to Las Vegas to Hollywood Boulevard and back again. But he also had a dark side. He was somewhat in league with the mafia. You have to kind of feel like Ronald Reagan, to some degree, was just an invention of Lou Wasserman, right? What is Ronald Reagan without Lou Wasserman? I'm not sure. Lou had relationships with every president until he died, right up until Clinton. It was absolute power that was never seen before and never seen again. This is Glitter and Might, the Lou Wasserman story.
I'm Sean Levy, an author and film critic. In the decades that I've spent writing about the history of Hollywood, I've run across some variation on the phrase the legendary Lou Wasserman so frequently that I took his stature as a given without ever really looking into it. I knew that Wasserman was one of Hollywood's most powerful moguls for decades, the man atop the company that made Psycho and The Sting and Jaws. But I didn't know just how powerful he'd been or how much of what he innovated is still with us today. Lou Wasserman oversaw the invention of the made-for-TV movie and the transformation of a movie studio into a theme park. You've heard about actors making $20 million and producing their own projects? That's Lou Wasserman. You stood in line to see a blockbuster movie on opening weekend? That's Wasserman. And beyond that, his fingerprints were all over not only the architecture of Hollywood, but also on the bridges between Hollywood and political power. Wasserman and his company helped elect every president from Kennedy to Clinton. And in all that time, he maintained friendly working relationships with associates of organized crime. I didn't know all of this because, as I learned, Wasserman, who died more than 20 years ago, wanted it that way. Where other movie moguls sought glory and stuck their names on things, he sought only power and preferred to work in the shadows. I came to think that he was a legend not only because of his achievements, but also because he almost seemed not to have existed, prompting me to wonder, who was he? The first person I spoke with was Dennis McDougall, whose biography of Wasserman, The Last Mogul, was the only one written during Wasserman's lifetime. Dennis told me that he initially conceived of the book in 1988, when the Writers Guild was engaged in a strike against the major TV networks and film studios. The strike dragged on for more than five months, and McDougal was a rookie reporter covering it for the Los Angeles Times. One day, I was there as usual with three or four other reporters, and a long black limousine pulled up in front of the producer's building, and one of the other veteran reporters turned to me and said, well, the strike will be over in 48 hours. And I said, why is that? And he said, because the Prince of Darkness just walked through the front door, Lou Wasserman. So I went back to the LA Times and I asked the librarian on duty to pull all the clips that she had on Lou Wasserman. And she handed me a small envelope and there couldn't have been more than a half dozen clippings with Lou Wasserman's name in the stories, but there was nothing substantial about him at all. He seems to be this all-powerful figure, and yet there's nothing about him? That doesn't make any sense. I'm with Dennis. Even after reading his book and doing my own digging and speaking to journalists and historians and people who knew the man, I find Lou Wasserman both magnetizing and mystifying. Who even is Lou Wasserman? And how does someone get to become him? Let's start at the very, very beginning. Lou Wasserman was born in Cleveland in 1913, the son of a Jewish family that had immigrated from Russia. He excelled at school, but he needed to quit in order to help keep the household afloat, especially after his older brother Max died of epilepsy at age 16. 
I think that that had a real effect on his sense of surviving against all odds, bettering himself at every opportunity so that he would be able to avoid the same fate as his older brother. In his early 20s, Wasserman took a job at the Music Corporation of America, a talent agency business booking musicians and bands into nightclubs. He started off as an office boy in their Chicago headquarters, but quickly impressed MCA's founder, Jules Stein. Wasserman took to the company's formal competitive business culture with ease, becoming an embodiment of Stein's famous dictum, dress British, think Yiddish. Lou Wasserman was a very tall and austere figure. He was a very monochromatic figure. He wore only black suits, white shirts, and black ties. This is Frank Rose, author of The Agency, a history of MCA's biggest rival, the William Morris Agency. At a time and a place where everybody wanted to be a peacock, Lou stood out by making himself an extremely sober and forbidding figure. His hair was always perfect, and he had large black spectacles. They help you look more imposing, which is, I'm sure, what Lou had in mind. I once tried contact lenses and showed up in Lou's office without glasses, and he very abruptly told me that I looked like hell and I needed to go back putting on my glasses. <laughs> he intimidated me enough that I did. <laughs> this is Tom Johnson, who first met Wasserman in the 1960s when he was a young aide in the Lyndon Johnson White House. He was not a guy that you just expect to see in casual clothes or in uh, shorts, <laughs> for God's sakes. I don't know. Lou was formal. In 1939, three years into his MCA career, Wasserman was sent to Beverly Hills to head up the agency's new office dedicated to the movie business. In time, MCA's client list would come to read like the Hollywood Hall of Fame. Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, Betty Davis, Laurence Olivier, Fred Astaire, Joan Crawford, Alfred Hitchcock. But when Wasserman first arrived in town, he was handed an inauspicious roster of perhaps a half dozen performers, one of whom was a radio sportscaster from Iowa who hadn't acted since college. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Ronald Reagan. A few months ago, I was a sports announcer on a radio station in Des Moines, Iowa. And one day I ran into one of these movie talent scouts. I think I caught him off guard because the next thing I knew, I was taking a screen test for Warner Brothers in Hollywood. So here I am. They didn't seem like much of a team, Wasserman and Reagan, but Hollywood was like prospecting for gold. You could never predict who'd strike it lucky. Wasserman and Reagan were very different, but they'd both come from the Midwest to California to make their fortunes. And that, perhaps, is why they became lifelong friends and even, as we'll later see, partners of a sort, helping each other attain power and position that neither could have imagined in those first days. From that modest start, Wasserman set about growing MCA into a major agency by purchasing established stars rather than investing in young talent. In 1946, just 10 years into his MCA career, Wasserman became president of the company, leapfrogging over senior colleagues, not all of whom appreciated it. But Wasserman didn't let his success check his drive. In coming episodes, we'll see how he became the most powerful movie mogul in history, 
But to understand his genius for innovating and turning disaster into triumph, we should go back to a time when his relentlessly dominant career nearly collapsed. In the late 1960s, despite all his success, Wasserman had been running Universal Pictures for almost a decade, and he hadn't yet greenlit a single major hit film. I think what's happening in America at the time is that, you know, as you're coming out of the 60s, things are dramatically changing. Political activism, sexuality, language is getting looser. It's just a different time. And yet Universal keeps making Westerns, lots of them. These were films that Lou Wasserman liked. This is Barry Average, director of the documentary The Last Mogul, The Life and Times of Lou Wasserman. He was extraordinarily conservative. He didn't like to talk about sex. He didn't like to talk about sexuality. You know, when I interviewed Suzanne Plachette, she would talk about the fact that if she wanted to see Lou run from a car that they were in, all she had to talk about was sex or her having her period. And then he would, she said he would literally leave the car while it was moving. But this was America changing and certainly Universal missing a huge opportunity. They end up making a huge string of flops, including films like Sweet Charity and Thoroughly Modern Millie and the, the studios in debt to the tune of $100 million. There was a group that wanted him out. Things were not looking too good for Lou. And then in 1970, Wasserman turned disaster into triumph almost literally. Continental Airlines announces the departure of Flight 3 for Los Angeles and Honolulu at gate 28. The film Airport, based on a massively popular novel, not only made big money, but it ushered in an entirely new genre, the disaster film. Lou Wasserman was sort of ahead of his time. He was one of the first studio heads to realize that the franchise, even the genre of a movie, could be the star. This is film historian Mark Harris. I mean, when Universal put out all those really popular disaster movies in the early and mid-1970s, they were all branded with similar posters, similar ad campaigns. Who was in those movies was not so important. The big sell was, you're going to see an earthquake, or you're going to see a fire in a high-rise, or you're going to see a plane in trouble. Wisely, Wasserman invested that income in signing producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown to an exclusive deal, and the first thing they made was The Sting, an even bigger hit than Airport. The combination of product and promotion is working. Now, in the 70s, once again, movie makers are filling their theaters. In April 1974, everything Universal had been doing came to fruition at the Academy Awards. The Sting won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, and Lou Wasserman was presented with the Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award for his philanthropic work by his old client and friend, Alfred Hitchcock. We are proud to honor him tonight, Mr. Lou Wasserman. There was only one way to celebrate such a windfall, go to the beach. Which brings us back to that young director watching his future sink to the ocean floor off Martha's Vineyard.
Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. To be clear, Lou Wasserman didn't learn how to make successful movies so much as he found a way for Universal to make them. One of his best decisions in that regard was promoting Sidney Scheinberg to head of film production for the studio. Lou was the quarterback, Sid was the running back. He was literally, I mean, they were both tall, but Sid was big. He was big in every way. He was a big voice, he had a big mouth, he was a big presence. This is Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Sid stood out to Lou because of his just brilliant handling of business things, understanding spreadsheets and, and finance and that kind of stuff. Scheinberg had also demonstrated a knack for finding young talent. He'd assigned the first episode of Columbo to a 24-year-old director named Steven Spielberg. Now he was encouraging Sting producers Zanuck and Brown to take a chance on the Spielberg kid for their new film, Jaws. Wasserman had doubts. Lou, you know, had one look at him and said, you know, I'm not going to trust the several million dollars at the time and a fake shark with this kid who doesn't know anything, who hasn't done anything, and was very skeptical of him from the beginning. And sure enough, right from the start, there was reason to doubt Spielberg. Even before the first day of production, Jaws was an instance of what is known as a troubled shoot. Carl Gottlieb, screenwriter of Jaws, was reworking the script right up until the production started. And then he kept writing and rewriting. I moved into the house with Stephen, the log cabin, we called it. And I went to work, page one, scene one, rewriting the script. And as I would finish pages, I'd show them to Stephen, and we send them to the mimeograph department to the office to be reproduced and put the pages in the actor's hands for the next day's shooting. So I was writing one or two days ahead of the schedule. That's how the movie got written, day by day. Two of the three leads, Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw, openly fought. And the ocean, and the weather, and the shark, which kept breaking down or failing in some way. Once Stephen had made the decision to shoot in the water, in the real water, not in a tank, then the decision was, you know, what kind of shark? Spielberg got a retired creature engineer from Disney to build him a 12-ton mechanical shark controlled by an arm that would be attached to a platform on the ocean floor. It was an impressive feat, but there was a problem. It was never tested in salt water, and they put it in the water, and the salt water corroded everything, and none of the control cables would work, so it would just lay there like a lox. And we said, okay, well, we're stuck with it. We, we don't have a shark to shoot. 
So let's just shoot evidence of what the shark does. In the end, this strategy, born of necessity, would be one of the film's chief strengths. From the opening scene, with a girl being pulled under a calm sea by something, until the shark's first full appearance, an hour or so along, the audience is caught up not in horror, but in suspense. The fear not of what you can see, but of what you can't. But that masterstroke, which made Jaws a classic, wouldn't become apparent for almost another year. With that shark sunken on the seafloor, it looked like the film wouldn't even get finished, much less seen. There's an old vaudeville saying, never let them see you sweat. And Stephen could appear to be unfazed by whatever happened. But I know because I lived with him. Number one, he bit his nails down to the quick. Number two, he had difficulty sleeping, but he never let on. Back in Hollywood, Lou Wasserman was looking at the footage and wondering where the movie and the shark he had paid for were. The executives at Universal were seeing these reports. Twice a week, the report would come in, and the cost to date was escalating, and the cost to complete was escalating, and they decided to fly to Martha's Vineyard to see what the hell was going on. And the production manager, in anticipation of the arrival of the executives, had run all the numbers, and they were disastrous. They showed us $3 million over budget and six weeks behind. By the time the film was ready to show to a preview audience in early 1975, the budget had ballooned from $3.5 million to $5 million to $10 million, and the schedule had gone from 55 days to 159 days, longer than Gone with the Wind. Universal executives held their collective breath, expecting the worst. We invited Stephen to come with us and ride down to Orange County to go to this theater to see this preview. And the movie starts and it gets quiet. There's that huge scream when the head appears in the bottom of the boat. One person goes running up the aisle and Stephen shakes his head and said, oh God, we gotta walk out. Turned out it was somebody who was so terrified they went outside to throw up and then they came back in to watch the rest of the movie. So the movie finishes, you know, final credits come on, there's a pause, and then the audience erupts in applause and cheers, and it's pandemonium, and people are rushing to use the bathroom. You can't even hear yourself in the lobby because of the buzz from the audience. So the executives went into the men's room because it'd be the only quiet place to talk. And Wasserman says, you know, the best word of mouth for a movie is a line. That night, standing in that men's room, Lou Wasserman had a typical and typically brilliant brainstorm. The original plan called for Jaws to be released on some 700 screens nationwide. Wasserman, though, had a vision of a nation of moviegoers lining up for hours to see the film. He ordered the release cut to just over 400 screens. He wanted demand for the movie to appear greater than the supply. It was a typical stroke of genius. Lou saw the potential in this film and said, you know what, I want people to demand to see this film. I want them to go to the theaters in their cities and say, why aren't you playing it here? So let's release this and create this phenomenon and pull it back. And that was unheard of. With Wasserman's blessing, Universal spent almost $2 million advertising Jaws, an astronomical sum. 
there had been kind of forays into the idea of a national ad campaign before Jaws. But Jaws was really the first time where across the country, people got the same sales pitch about the same movie at the same time. And then came opening day. Normally a film opens and you're hoping to get two or three weeks out of it. This played the entire summer right into the fall. It was a phenomenon. People were calling their theaters in every city, demanding it. David Brown said that when Lou saw the grosses for Jaws, it was most likely the only orgasm he'd ever had. There were photographs, I remember, of just immense crowds and immense lines outside of movie theaters in New York, in Los Angeles. Those images just reinforcing the idea that this was the movie you had to see because this was the movie everybody wanted to see. So that was really pretty brilliant because people did wait three or four hours to get into Jaws. It opened in June of 1975 at number one. It stayed at number one for 14 weeks and it became the first film ever to gross $200 million at the box office. The sort of business that no one, not even Lou Wasserman, had ever imagined. All of a sudden, it was more money than The Godfather. All of a sudden, it was more money than Sound of Music. And all of a sudden, it was more money than any movie in the history of movies. And then it kept going. August, September, October, November, the money just kept coming in. Jaws is, in a way, the purest vindication of the universal system of making movies in the 1970s. I mean, it, again, was not star-driven. It had a couple of well-known actors in it, but the star of Jaws, of course, was the shark and the poster. And, you know, it became just an unprecedentedly huge movie success, really the beginning of the summer wide-release blockbuster. So right there, in the story of how one movie was made and marketed, and how it changed the game of Hollywood, I started to get an idea of the size of Lou Wasserman's impact and achievement. With Jaws, he helped usher in the era of the brand name director, the summer movie season, and the blockbuster franchise, to name just a few things that are still with us today. Wasserman's name isn't anywhere on the credits, but his say-so, his steady nerves, and his marketing brilliance made the film and its legend possible. As I also learned, though, there are aspects of Wasserman's story that aren't as obvious or familiar as Jaws and the new movie world it ushered in. Beneath the bits of his work that the Hollywood press and the general public could see, Wasserman and the company he ran were enmeshed in a web of power that stretched from Chicago speakeasies to Las Vegas casinos to Hollywood backrooms to the Oval Office itself. In our next episode, we'll start to drag some of those connections and stories into the light. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. 
We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.